0: Hey, it's Dan here. You're listening to the OK Computer takeover of the On The Tape feed. Every Wednesday, I co-host a podcast on all things technology, both public and private markets with a murderer's row of tech investors, former operators and thought leaders. We will be squarely focused on the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3, whatever that means. And we've already had a couple of great guests like Adam Bain, the former Twitter COO and investor at O1 Advisors, and Alexis Ohanian, the founder of Reddit and investor at 776. So please follow OK Computer in the podcast stores and follow us on Twitter at OK Computer Pod. Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking.
1: Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive
0: to the bank anymore? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy to use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to current.com slash OK, o k a y and download the app. That's current.com slash
1: OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC.
0: All right, what up, peeps? I am Dan Nathan. This is OK Computer. I have Meltem Demers. You know Meltem. She's from CoinShares. And my main man... Brian Kelly, BKCM in the house. This is your first OK computer, isn't it, Brian Kelly?
2: It is. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the radio show, Dan. I appreciate it. Is this on 790 AM or what do we do?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. First time caller, long time. All right. So here's the deal. Meltem is 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 a mainstay here, at BK. She's just kind of stealing all of your crypto and macro thunder here. And I just said, you know, she's back on the East Coast. What's up, Meltem? How are you?
3: I'm fabulous. Um, here in beautiful New Hampshire. We're about to make New Hampshire crypto state. Governor Sununu is convening a crypto council to work on policy. It's super exciting.
0: All right. Talk to us about that. I didn't realize this. I saw something that you tweeted last week about that you've actually done a lot of speaking about policy and you've been part of working groups. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Just like anyone else, politicians are looking to understand crypto, not only in the sense that they're thinking about policies and regulation, but also a lot of crypto wealth has been created and they're courting voters, midterm elections coming up. And also states are competing for high income, high net worth workers who are leaving coasts and looking for better tax policies, looking for a bit more space, maybe a change of pace. And so it's been interesting to see, you know, Wyoming was one of the first states to establish some clear guidance, particularly around DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations, as well as banking charters and banking licenses i <laughs> New Hampshire just announced they're convening a crypto council. It'll be three members from industry and three members outside of industry from local organizations. And I think New Hampshire is quite serious about looking at ways to become more attractive for crypto individuals, for crypto businesses. I think these policies include not only taxation, so obviously no income tax, no sales tax here in New Hampshire, but it's also things like infrastructure, broadband, internet. Do you have a good education system? Is there an abundant supply of energy? Is there access to water and land. But also, I think it's a lifestyle thing. After spending a number of years in New York and dealing with the draconian bit license, which no new bit licenses have been granted (laughs) in years, you get tired of it at the end of the day. And people want to operate in jurisdictions where they can have productive relationships and build businesses. And states that issue clear guidance and are collaborative and embrace the industry, I think are going to find they do quite well economically and create new jobs and create growth.
0: BK, you got sick of it, and you domiciled out there in Wyoming. What's your experience been over the last year?
2: Yeah, for exactly what Melton was saying. We were in New York City. We were right on Park Avenue, right where the financial capital of the world is supposed to be, and it got almost impossible to do business. I operate a global business. I'm competing with Asian hedge funds. I'm competing with European hedge funds. I'm competing all around the world, and I couldn't do it from New York City, which is insane because New York is supposed to be where all the financial innovation happens. And so you go to states like Wyoming, their doors are wide open. You can compete globally there. And it sounds crazy that it's easier to compete globally in Wyoming than it is in New York City, but that's the truth. And I've talked to politicians as well, and they're just not interested in changing anything. And so what happens when you don't change things? The new and interesting and all the jobs leave.
0: I hate to see you both go because you guys are my go-to peeps when it comes to crypto, but I guess we'll just keep podcasting. Well, here's the deal. We're going to talk a little bit about your true love, your true passions, which is crypto, but I got to start with my passions, which is the equity markets and what's going on in general across all sorts of risk assets. BK and I met on the set of Fast Money, I think more than 10 years ago, Beaks, and you were definitely the macro guy. You focused on commodities, on rates, and a whole host of other things outside of my dumb little purview of stocks and options. I kind of want to start with what's going on. The headlines are Russia invades Ukraine and all the potential knockoff effects in geopolitical and macro terms. But we've spent a lot of time, at least since we started OK Computer and then also on on the tape, our other podcasts of just talking over the... last year about what's been going on under the hood with risk assets. And it's had to do with valuations, had a lot to do with monetary policy. And I know that's really important to you guys and what you guys are focused on. But let's talk about what's going on in the here and now. The S&P is down about 10 percent. The Nasdaq's down about 14 percent. We're seeing a lot of volatility in other risk assets. Give us the lay of the land here. We had the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield last week briefly above 2 percent. It came in a little bit. We've had crude oil, It just kissed a hundred bucks here. The dollar is year over year up considerably, almost 10% or so. Gold finally broke out here. What the hell's going on?
2: It's all about the Fed. Frankly, all of the central bank. First of all, in the beginning of the year, every central bank said inflation is transitory. Almost everybody knew that it wasn't going to be transitory. Now the Fed and every other central bank is backtracking and they're a bit panicked, frankly, if you ask me the way that they're acting. They're a bit panicked that this inflation is no longer transitory, that it's permanent and it's going to get entrenched in the economy. So what are they doing? They're saying the only option that a central bank has to control inflation is to induce a recession. And that's what they're going to try to do. And that's what the risk assets are starting to reflect. So if you look out beyond one or two years on some of the yield curves, you look at the OIS swaps curve, you look at forward points, they're inverted. They're already telling you we're going to have a recession, probably in 2023. That's what the market's telling you. Therefore, earnings on stocks are not what you think. So when you talk about tech stocks, those are high multiple tech stocks, which is fine as long as the E part of the PE continues to grow. But if the E part of the PE is not going to grow, then there's not a lot of reason to be in these stocks, particularly when you have rates going above 2% on the 10-year. You have real rates in positive territory, which we haven't seen for a while. So in general, it's just a terrible environment for risk assets
3: covered the macro side, but I just want to talk briefly about tech stocks and particularly what we saw in 2020 at the start of COVID was a significant rotation out of core equities and so-called value stocks into growth stocks, into tech. We saw tech names absolutely soaring. We saw a slate of tech IPOs. There's a really interesting chart I was looking at. It's a list of 150 tech stock names, and all of those are down between 93 and 65% over the last month or two. And that's not only newer names like Peloton, Clover Health, it also includes Roblox, Twilio, a handful of others. I think we also see this with the way Facebook is trading. They're trading at a 15X PE multiple, which is inconceivable. We're also seeing this creep into late stage venture. News last week that large funds who've traditionally participated in the growth equity space, the pre IPO space, are now no longer allocating there because very bearish sentiment around going public. And they're focusing on swiping good deals in public markets where they have liquidity or going much earlier stage where they're not going to be held accountable for performance for an extended period of time and just continue clipping management fees. So I do think what's been interesting, and again, I'm going to tie it back to crypto because, you know, I always do. I'm shameless. I apologize. I think what we're seeing here, a lot of people have historically criticized the volatility of crypto assets, things like Bitcoin, but also long tail crypto assets. I think what we're seeing, excuse my language here, everything's trading like a shit coin. And that's what's been so wild to me is historically have always presumed that volatility is isolated to specific types of assets, particularly newer alternatives like crypto. But now we're seeing broad ranging volatility Across a number of asset classes that a lot of investors have historically perceived as less volatile. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I think to BK's point, as we look at policymakers, and again, the relationships that policymakers have with TradFi and crypto finance, when it comes to traditional markets, policymakers really only have one lever at this point as QE. And the only thing they can do is number go up. That's it. We haven't seen anyone effectively implement, number go down. We're also in an election year, so it's just completely political, unviable until after the midterms for either party to do anything to cool the economy. People are looking at their portfolios. If number no go up, then people aren't getting elected. (laughs) Let's be very candid. And political parties will get punished in the midterm elections. It's a really important year for that. And so I think just generally, people don't want to do anything too draconian. People don't want to spook the market. Policymakers in particular are in a really tough position right now. They have a limited number of they can pull. And so what do you see people doing? People are taking matters into their own hands and they're very willing to take risk because right now, where else are they going to put those assets? $6 trillion of dry powder on the sidelines. It can't sit there forever with inflation reported at 7.8%. Who knows how high inflation actually is when we factor in the things that are not included in CPI. But certainly fear, uncertainty, doubt, or FUD, all-time highs. I think, again, we continue to see people looking at crypto allocating to crypto. Across the board, I think there is just a growing awareness from both retail investors all the way to institutions and traditional asset allocators and asset managers that what has worked for the last 20 years isn't working anymore. So I think there is a big shift underway. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But again, I view this as a window of opportunity. And it's too soon to tell if crypto is going to be the answer. I certainly think it's part of the answer.
0: Over the weekend in Barron's, there was an article, the Fed doesn't have a playbook to tame inflation while avoiding a recession, to your point, BK. And look at the last two years. This was a note by our friend Peter Bookfar Leakley Advisors, and he was just basically talking about how the Fed, when they tightened the last two instances in May of 2020, and then again in July of 2006, they basically deflated massive asset bubbles. The first couple times that they had attempted to avoid recessions, they found themselves inflating asset bubbles. And then when they went to deflate them, they basically caused the next recession. And so what's interesting to me, Meltem, especially that you shifted to tech stocks in particular over the last year, it seems like every time we've turned on a mic, we're talking about this, the bloodletting in recent tech IPOs, in high valuation stocks, in SPACs, and even at periods in crypto. I do think it's interesting that the prior all-time high in Bitcoin, it literally came on the day of the direct listing IPO of Coinbase, remember back in April. And so we tie a lot of that stuff together. So BK, my question for you is we've seen this coming. How did our central bank not see this coming? Because right now, Meltem said everything's trading like a shit coin. It feels like a shit show right now. It feels like we are on the precipice of potentially a crash in risk asset markets here.
2: And I think that's what the Fed is actually trying to engineer. So how did they not see it coming? I have no idea. I've been to a million Fed meetings, and they present all their models, and they say that they can tweak inflation and get it from 1.8% to 2.1%. And I raise my hand and say, guys, you missed the inflation target for 10 years. Why do you think you can get so granular on it? And they go, well, our models tell us so. So frankly, I have zero confidence in their ability to look forward. If I actually ran my business the way they ran the Fed, I'd be out of business. For whatever reason, whether it's political, you get in that seat and something changes. It's just they did not see it coming. But now think about what they have to do. They have to slow the economy in a election year, like Meltem said. So what are their choices? They have a dual mandate. They have to keep full employment. And they have to keep inflation in check. Well, full employment means that they really can't induce a recession. I happen to think they are going to do it anyway, but they're going to try their damnedest not to do it. The only other outlet that leaves are asset prices. So to me, what 2022 looks like is first half of the year, you have this rate shock that deflates all of the assets. It deflates the asset bubble. Then sometime, maybe in the summer, something like that, we get in a recession fear. And what we need to see is something break. Not that we need to see it. I'd rather not see it. But if you're betting that the Federal Reserve and central banks are going to come back and print more money, then you need to see something break because the Fed put is way lower than it's ever been. They need to crush this economy now so that they can boost it up for the midterms. And I think that's what's happening. So that being said, how does that relate to crypto and everything else? It unfortunately becomes tough sledding because crypto has been trading on this concept that the Fed is going to print money forever. So either they're going to print money again and crypto goes up, or you need to get a new narrative, which could be crypto is a hedge against some sort of financial calamity. That seems like a good thing, but the market hasn't bid on that yet. So until that happens, it's tough for crypto.
0: So, Melton, we just had gold pop out of this downtrend that it's been in. It made a new all-time high in the summer of 2020. And that was a hedge against calamity. I think at that point, we were still in the throes of the pandemic and the QE was firing at all cylinders. And now here we are, year and a half later, where gold has just picked up a little bit, crypto is down, probably 50% as an asset class. What about the dispersion between those two, especially when you consider the fact that one of the bull cases for Bitcoin in particular is that store of value? What are we seeing play out right here?
3: I'm actually going to differ from BK here a little bit. Historically, the way investors have perceived gold is as a safe haven asset, as an antidote against chaos. Bitcoin, in my view, and I'm going to focus here specifically on Bitcoin, Bitcoin is also an antidote to chaos that you can buy in your portfolio. But more importantly, you can self-custody and hold outside of the existing financial system. Now, to most people, this has never mattered. We live in the United States of America. Most of your listeners are probably affluent, have university degree, have never had issues with the banking system. They don't really know what happens in Turkey or Iran or Venezuela or Argentina that's like completely outside of their realm of possibility, out of their wildest perception of what might happen. I actually think what's been really interesting that's been happening, the protests that have been going on in Canada and the way that the Canadian government has responded by freezing accounts, by seizing assets, by basically completely cutting off access to the financial system and effectively isolating people who participate in these protests – through this form of financial violence, which, by the way, financial violence is the most prevalent form of violence in our world today. Over 70% of the world's population is subject to some type of sanction or economic limitation based on the regime under which they live. 70% of the world's population lives under totalitarian regimes, a reality that we don't think about in the United States. But I think what's been happening in Canada has opened people's eyes to this idea that in this new world we're moving into of surveillance capitalism, where central banks are literally coming out and saying... We want to control who can spend money, what they can spend it on. We want to track every flow. If you read between the lines, it's happening in the United States, it's happening in Canada, it's happening throughout Europe. They're not hiding it anymore. It's all out there. And so I think what people are waking up to is this idea that, oh my God, I need an antidote to this in my portfolio. And again, that's always been our thesis is... A small allocation to Bitcoin in particular, it's insurance. It's insurance against incompetent governments. It's insurance against chaos and calamity. And it's such a small bet to make. And again, the volatility of Bitcoin is there. But every time we have higher highs, we have higher lows. I do think we are in a cyclical trend that is volatile, but the secular trend is up and to the right. So I do think that political events and financial <laughs> policies that have been articulated and have unfolded over the past month in particular have really made people more open to this idea that, hey, there is something else out there. I'll start to get more engaged in it. Maybe I'm going to add a little bit. There are now more channels than ever for people to do that. And we see sovereign countries as well adopting Bitcoin. They're looking for... alternatives. The other thing that's unfolding, if we look at what's happening in Russia, we no longer live in a US dollar denominated world. We live in a multipolar currency world. And I think, again, what's going to be really challenging for regulators is you can't pick up the phone and call the president of Bitcoin. There is no one to intimidate. So you can perhaps put political pressure on the CEOs of crypto platforms, as we saw the OSJ in Canada did with Coinbase and Kraken came out and said, we will F you if you keep going with this line. But again, you can't censor the Bitcoin network. You can't call the CEO of Bitcoin and say, hey, you need to do X, Y, Z. I think policymakers have no idea how to deal with that world. They have no idea how to even conceptualize how to operate in that world. And as a result, I think this idea of Bitcoin as an antidote to chaos in your portfolio is going to grow. I'm excited about that
0: we talked about the bit license here in new york you talked about what the canadians are able to do with these centralized platforms and for most people the on ramp would be these central they really do have a lot of sway though that's the one thing that i think is a pillar of the bear case when you think about regulation and then the on ramps are these very centralized platforms to most new entrants
2: it would be the same bear case for gold though and i've been saying this for years anybody who buys gld etf because they're worried about getting censored or they're worried about geopolitical problems, good luck taking your GLD shares down to the New York gold vaults and getting your gold out in a period of chaos. So it's the same thing. You just shut off the exchange. You shut off that road. Now, the difference is between Bitcoin and gold in that sense, and gold works just as well in the sense that you can bury it in your backyard. It's just kind of heavy and hard to carry around, where Bitcoin, it's zeros and ones. So I can carry it in my pocket and I can carry millions of dollars in my pocket. Is that a risk case for Bitcoin? Is that the existential threat? Absolutely. That being said, what Meltem is saying, when people start to understand that, hey, wait a second, I may not have access to my money because of what I say out loud, because I disagree with a government order, then you start to say, hey, you know what? Maybe I need a hedge. And maybe that's the new narrative that takes Bitcoin to the new highs. I'm not really sure. The one other thing I wanted to just add where people are getting confused about this Bitcoin gold relationship, I hear everybody saying, how come Bitcoin's not an inflation hedge? It's not working. It's down from the highs. Well, guess what? The Fed told you they're going to crush inflation. So tips are down. Bonds are up. All these things, every single inflation hedge is not working as an inflation hedge because you don't need it anymore if the Fed's going to cut it. Now, why is gold up? Because gold generally is an inflation hedge. To me, I would add there's actually probably a different driver of gold here, and it is the geopolitical tension. But if you look at who's been buying gold over the last several years, it's Russia and China. And so what's the biggest threat to Russia and China? Getting cut off from the SWIFT system. Well, what if they got cut off from the SWIFT system and then made their own gold-backed currency? That might be the hedge. And frankly, I think it's enough of a hedge, maybe a 5%, 10% possibility, but it's enough for people to start buying gold as opposed to Bitcoin. So I think that's what's going on rather than Bitcoin has failed as an inflation hedge.
0: So Meltem, if you agreed with that, do you think censorship resistance for Bitcoin is enough of a bull case to continue to bring new entrants in, especially as you've had this 50% decline from the highs, meandering a little bit? There's been some calls from some prominent crypto folks that we might be in the midst of a crypto winter. Didn't we have Vitalik say something like that recently? And I guess the point is, is how do you regenerate the bull case if an inflation hedge is not going to be a big part of it if the central banks, if we believe that they will crush inflation over the next 6 to 12 months.
3: We operate in both the cyclical trend and the secular trend. I think an allocation to Bitcoin is not a short-term, get-rich-quick scheme. It is really a long-term investment. Homelia Funstra has done some great analysis on this. You do the best if you just buy and hold. This is not something you're really actively trading. And I think, again, the key here is it just takes time. It's a function of time. And it's also a function of not just number go up in terms of Bitcoin price, it's number of users and number of use cases go up. Those on ramps are getting built. There's new tooling and infrastructure being built every day. From a technical development perspective, Bitcoin is 13 years old. Ethereum is about six years old. These newer networks are much younger. It's just a function of time. The second piece I would add to the censorship resistance component and the fact that you raised this point, a lot of Bitcoin is held in third party custody by organizations, companies that are subject and susceptible to intervention, pressure, seizure of assets, etc. I think what we're doing is we're teaching people new behavior. And that new behavior is one that humans really haven't had in, I don't know, 400, 500 years, really. It's how to be responsible for your own assets. We've always trusted our assets to third parties. It's why we have all of these insane financial regulations that make it really challenging For some firms to operate, they're there for a reason. What we're asking people to do is fundamentally rethink the level of personal responsibility they have for their own financial well-being, for their wealth, for their savings, and for their investments. And I think that behavioral shift takes a long time. People like myself and BK, we've been in it, gosh, for almost a decade now. We're evangelists of this. We feel comfortable with it. A lot of people don't. That's what we do at CoinShares. We build products, services, tools that make it easy for people who aren't like us to figure out how to do this stuff and to give them on ramps that feel familiar and feel safe. That's what Coinbase does. That's what Kraken does. That's what Gemini does. That's what a bunch of these firms are doing. By the way, all of these firms, including ours, are now starting to build non-custodial financial products and services. Number one, you don't need as much regulatory capital. You don't have as much regulatory overhead if what people are interacting with with is just data services or subscription services that give people trade ideas. You can register as an RIA, you can register as an advisor. You don't need to custody people's assets, which reduces a lot of your liability, a lot of your overhead. So I think it just takes a very long time to teach people new behavior. The iPhone came out, gosh, 15 years ago, People are just still now getting to the iPhone. Arguably, we're in the late stages of adoption, and we've probably pushed past that critical mass that's needed. But a lot of people didn't really use smartphones a decade ago. I think what we need to remember is that changing user behavior takes time. What's happening in markets, what's happening in the world right now, from social, technical, political, cultural perspective, and a financial perspective, is accelerating the rate of adoption. I think we underestimate how rapidly. People's mindsets and their willingness to try new behaviors is changing, but I do think it is a function of time. Like Human behavior, your brain as a piece of hardware hasn't evolved in what 160,000 years. The software in your brain, you're constantly learning. You have psycho tools, you have physical tools that you learn to use. It takes a long time for people to learn new software in their brain to learn new things, and so to me, it's a function of time, but that's why we're out here. That's why we're doing this all day, every day, talking about it. That's why we're on Twitter, YouTube, broadcast television, this podcast. This is what we're here to do. It's gonna take a long time. I'm not tired yet. I have a shitload of energy. So keep the punches coming. I am ready, but it's just gonna take time. But I'm extremely optimistic. At the end of the day, the battle we're facing is the battle of centralization, increasingly draconian and totalitarian governments, including our own. And um, this battle for personal civil liberties the right to financial privacy, and the right to choice. And I think in that battle, choice will always win. Always.
2: So, Dan, let me put a little historical context around what Meltem has so eloquently described of what's going on here. So, I've said from the beginning, I still believe this, that Bitcoin is the most important financial innovation in 600 years. And why do I say that? Because 600 years ago, the Medici family, remember them, they invented what's called double entry of bookkeeping, accounting. And so, what was their whole thing? How did they make their fortune? They basically stood in the middle and said, Listen, we are going to keep the ledger of all the assets that everybody holds. And they became a bank. And that is what we call a modern bank. That's where modern banking came from. Bitcoin comes along and says, Hey, wait a second. I don't need the Medici's, I don't need JP Morgan, I don't need this middleman anymore, I'm going to do it with software. And that's what Bitcoin's doing, and that's the bull case for Bitcoin in the future. So Bitcoin is kind of like what Facebook and all these things have done to broadcast media, to video, to newspapers, that's what Bitcoin's doing to financial services. So if you think about the longer term bull case, which Melton's talking about, You think about, do you think there are going to be more users of Bitcoin in 10 years than there are today? And if your answer is yes, you buy some Bitcoin today, you close your eyes, and you're going to be happy in 10 years.
0: So Beeks, you've often talked about some of the metrics at BKCM that you use, and I know that CoinShares does a ton of research on this too, Meltem. What are some of the metrics that your normie friends like me can keep an eye on other than the price go up or price go down that we should keep our eyes on that actually show the underlying
2: fundamentals of the Bitcoin network? Number of addresses is the single best indicator that you can look at. The growth in the addresses. Growth in addresses, you can get out on any platform really will show you growth in addresses. But if you take the number of addresses and lay it across the Bitcoin price, you get a correlation up to 90% of the time. So what that says is that the number of addresses, which is like monthly average users or daily average users on Facebook, explains 90% of the price move. Now, what's interesting, you do that same thing for Facebook stock. You take their monthly active users, you overlay that with the Facebook price, and you get a almost 80% correlation between the monthly active users and the price of Facebook stock. So it's the same thing. It's network effect. So if there's one indicator that I'm going to look at is, are we getting more users? Are there new addresses slash wallets on the network? Answer is yes, that's positive.
0: All right. That was the macro. When we come back, we're going to drill down on some micro. We're going to talk about some innovation in general, and these guys are going to school me a little bit on some NFT action. So stick around.
1: and Cross River Bank member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros.
0: All right, so guys, I was on the Closing Bell on CNBC the other day with Melissa Lee, who's the host of Fast Money. You guys are both good friends with her. She's a genius. And Sarah Eisen, and Sarah heard me talking very negatively about Tech. We were referring to Kathy Wood. She is the fund manager of the ARK Innovation ETF, and she was just on with Scott Wapner the prior day defending her performance in innovation. One of the things that's really interesting about Kathy is I'm sure you guys both know her fairly well. She was very early on crypto. She's very early on E She created a fund really focused on a pretty broad term when you think about what innovation is, but they've done a lot of research and they have a lot of thesis about long-term tech innovation. And I just thought it was really interesting to me that her response kept on being like, investing in innovation, investing in innovation. It was just kind of divorced of the economic reality of valuation versus opportunity set. So Sarah asked me, well, where are you thinking about innovation? And I've said this to you guys a few times here. If you ask me, and I'm like the fast money guy, I'm the stock market guy, I'll buy the QQQ here and I'll leg into those big centralized platform names. And then you'll get some of these smaller cap or mid cap names that really do have innovation, whether their valuations make sense. I don't know, but a lot of them are down 50, 60, 70% or something like that from the recent highs. And so one of the answers I've given, and I didn't give it on closing bell the other day, I should have. I'd rather buy Ethereum or I'd rather buy Solana than I would most of these tech stocks, even these ones that have been totally wrecked. And I'm just curious, Beeks, what do you think about that? Meltem just mentioned, and you guys have often said, okay, well, Bitcoin should be low to mid-single digits of an allocation in your portfolio of investable assets with a long-term time horizon. I'm just curious what you think of that answer.
2: What's happening within crypto is we are seeing some dispersion. Bitcoin has been a macro asset. It is going to trade on what the Federal Reserve does and what the ECB does. But underneath all of this is this innovation that you're talking about, whether it's Solano or Ethereum or any of these other platforms out there. And that's where the new stuff's being built. So if you think about the internet boom and you think about how that disrupted all traditional media, all traditional industries. Where is that innovation happening today? It's happening on Ethereum and Solana and Atoms and all of these other things. So, if I'm a tech investor, a tech portfolio manager, and my mandate is to buy tech stocks okay so maybe you don't necessarily buy ethereum but you should at least know what's going on there because the people that are building on those platforms are coming after your companies so i talked about how bitcoin and how crypto in general is taking on financial services just like the web did to the post office well web 3 is basically the same thing creating all the same products that we have now But without that big middleman in the middle, so whether it's Facebook or Google or Amazon, that's what Web3 is. It's removing the middleman from internet services, not financial services. If I want to play the NFT boom or I want to play this new innovation, I want to buy the platforms that it's being built on. That's the simplest way to do it. So Meltem
0: at CoinShares, do you guys envision investors having a little Facebook, a little Microsoft, a little JP Morgan, a little Saul, a little Bitcoin? Is there a way to construct a portfolio? I've heard you speak about the 60-40 portfolio is dead going forward, and you have a lot of reasons why you believe that. Is there demand for those sorts of products for retail investors?
3: I have a thesis on where I want to invest in the next decade, and I think it's a good articulation of how BK spoke about the crypto-specific thesis, but it's much broader than that. If we look at what the future is going to entail, there are some fundamental truths Anchored in reality and science and how atoms and our world works, there is a physical reality here. No matter how much we operate in the digital, anytime you use a piece of technology, there are two fundamental things that are true. Number one, you're using a chip or a semiconductor of some type. That is a reality. All computation, all connectivity requires a chip, a semiconductor of some type. And the second thing that's true is in order for that chip to be utilized, you need energy to flow through it. So the way I'm thinking about the future is this. There are three mega trends that I'm focusing on. Number one is the future of energy. And the reality is no matter how much we talk about ESG or fossil fuels or all this shit, the reality is Every product you touch, everything you pick up from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, even when you're laying down in your bed, 95% of products in our world today have a petrochemical of some type in them as their raw input. Natural gas is utilized. Petrochemicals are utilized. That is a fundamental input to anything that is physical in our world today. The way that energy is produced, even if we had all renewables, the reality is we need a consistent and persistent base load. Our energy usage is only going up because the amount of time we spend in digital space and the complexity of the computation we're doing as a result of the increasingly complex and powerful tools we're utilizing require energy. That is just a fundamental atomic universe truth that you cannot change. So, thesis one is invest in energy, energy infrastructure. Thesis two, invest in semiconductors, computation, connectivity. Both innovation in those areas, whether that's photonic computing, that's computing done with lasers, basically more energy efficient, so it reduces demand, but also improves efficiency and throughput as well as performance. And whether that's investing in connectivity and infrastructure, whether that's investing in new models for distributed computation, Those are two fundamental truths that make everything we're doing in Web3 and in crypto possible. Now, the issue I have is we have a bunch of people running around talking about all these promises of Web3 and crypto. It's all great. Except we're still 100% dependent on all this physical infrastructure that's owned by governments and corporations. The biggest threat in our world today is this physical supply chain. That's what we're seeing here. A lot of the Russia issue is around Nord Stream 2 and Russian natural gas and its importance to European energy stability. And so I think, again, it's very <laughs> difficult sometimes for me to talk to crypto people because they operate in this world that somehow functions independently of the laws of physics and the laws of thermodynamics. It doesn't. Where the alpha is, where the opportunity is, it's putting these things together. And I actually think Kathy nailed this with her call on EVs. Short term, there's going to be some volatility. Long term, will that play out? I don't know how that plays out for her. I have a lot of respect for Kathy and what she's built. But long term, these are fundamental truths. This is how energy and atoms and matter works. This is how technology works. So I think, again, if you couple those three together, energy, computation, connectivity, and then crypto, that's a really beautiful three-part investment strategy in my view.
0: You know what's so fascinating, though? You just did that in a few minutes. Scott Wapner interviewed Kathy, who's got this retail-facing product, and she's considered a bit of a wizard because she identified a lot of these themes and why retail might be really interested in them five years ago. And now she's had this period of really poor performance. And she went up there, and she took the questions. And I give her a ton of credit for that. And she's very transparent. But if she just literally mimicked what you just said in three minutes, that would have been sufficient in a way. We would have seen the future, at least the thesis for it, rather than innovation, innovation, innovation. Because you can't tell me that Robinhood seems particularly innovative right now or Zoom anymore seems like an innovative company that we should be willing to pay 15 times sales for Props to you. I hope she gets it together. The other one I would just say is that last month on Invest Like the Best, Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast, Gavin Baker of Atreides Management was on there and he articulated the case just like you did in three minutes, but he did it over an hour for why all of these different verticals within tech make sense and how to capture that innovative wave as we think about disruptive technologies. And it was just actually fascinating. Beeks, what do you think about the idea of creating portfolios that really do integrate equities? The whole 60-40 thing is dead. Is there a near-term future for the integration of equities and cryptos?
2: Yeah, I think there is. If you just think about exactly what Meltem said, each of those areas, you want to figure out a way to invest in that. So sometimes it's going to be equity. Sometimes it's going to be crypto. It just depends on what the vehicle is. So I do think there's a combo of the two that'll work really well. I would say, and I think this echoes what Melton was saying, is that you are no longer going to be able to depend on a central bank liquidity pumping all your assets up and all your investments up. So now you've got to come and find the investments that have real utility, that have real organic growth. And I think crypto is certainly in that bucket, energy probably nuclear, and frankly, even a lot of the stuff that Kathy Wood's talking about. She is probably one of the most brilliant investors I've ever met. She's going through a really rough period of time. I understand what she's doing. But if you think about her long-term thesis, it's still intact. And so she can't help whether or not investors want to pay 15 or 20 or 30 times. I've always thought PE ratios are made-up numbers anyways. Who cares? But if you think over the next decade, if you're in investments that do not rely On central bank intervention and central bank blowing bubbles, you're probably going to do all right.
0: That's a fact. All right. Well, listen, Meltem Numeras of Corn Shares, BK of BKCM. Thanks for joining us on OK Computer, guys. We hope to have you back very soon.
2: Thanks, Dan. Great show.
0: If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.